Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chapar, Director of News at The Block, and I am back from FIA Boca. It was really interesting to see the extent to which crypto has really taken over the conversation in institutional derivatives. Before I introduce our really special guest today, I want to thank all of the people who came up to me at Boca, told me how much they liked the show. I'm thinking of Mina, I'm thinking of Tom, I'm thinking of Steve. Thank you so much, everyone who listens. I hope you're appreciating the audio changes that we've been making recently, the guests that we've been having on recently, and can't wait to dive into today's episode. On the other side of the mic, we have Diogo Monica, co-founder and president of Anchorage Digital. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There are so many practitioners out there who I've written about or whom I've watched at a distance who I haven't had on the show yet. And when I end up ultimately having them on, it's a very like weird experience for me. Like, not that I've been stalking you, but that's <laughs> kind of what my job is to stalk people in this market. But I remember Anchorage was connected to this idea of being anti pirate custody. So maybe for people who have been living under a rock or only get information <laughs> from this show, talk us a little bit about that technology you guys came out with early on and how it's really changed as the company has grown into a unicorn powerhouse. Yeah, it's still the same narrative. It would be crazier now for people not to have evolved for the past four years. But you're absolutely right. When you mentioned pirate custody, what I meant when we started Anchorage was that there was no technology that institutions could legitimately use for custody in a safe but accessible manner. And why pirate custody? Well, because the way that pirates store their gold coins in the 1700s was effectively put their gold coins, put them in treasure chests, bury them in islands, and then have little maps on uh, where they actually left their treasure chests. And at the time that Anchorage was started, which was October, November 2017, that was the status quo for institutional custody. People were doing cold storage exclusively. Effectively, instead of using 
treasure chests. They were using safety deposit boxes instead of using gold coins. Of course, there were ledgers or little smart cards. And instead of maps, they actually had checklists on which bank they used for which shard of the key. But the technology was the same. It was humans running around, collecting key shards and plugging them in computers all around the world. And this was obviously incredibly inefficient. And I think that the past four and a half years really have proven us right because institutions need to access these funds fast. The rise of staking, the rise of DeFi that requires constant use of these private keys really shows that you can't have a vault in Switzerland somewhere that actually has your private keys or else you can't actively participate with your assets. I think most people are going to have an understanding of hot storage and cold storage. Diogo, how did you guys sort of change the game up? What is the technology there? Yeah, it's interesting because there's no secret sauce. It's just good security engineering. Both myself and my co-founder, Nathan McCauley, we are security engineers by trade. We led the security team at companies like Square, companies like Docker. Before Square, I was doing a PhD in security and in distributed systems. So the Venn diagram of our skill set was just perfect to start this company. And the first thing that we have to realize is that this hot-cold analogy was created for something very different from security and computer science, which was caching. If something is hot, it is effectively easy to access, fast to access, milliseconds for you to access this piece of information. And if something is cold, is because it has to go all the way to storage, maybe even create a database, and thus it's a lot slower of access. And in that particular world where the only thing you're measuring is time to access, then hot and cold makes sense. Security is not just hot or cold. Temperature is actually an incredibly lazy proxy metric for security. There's a lot more gradations and a lot more degrees of freedom that you have in security. And so what we recognized was this is not just about hot or cold. This is about having both accessibility and safety. And so what do we do? What we did was we took the best of cold storage, which is obviously this air gap nature of the asset. No asset is ever directly connected to the public network. But we removed the worst part of cold storage, which is humans. Humans are terrible at following checklists. In the United States alone, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have issues or are killed by surgeons that forget to follow a step on a checklist. And so humans were not made to follow checklists. You know what was? Robots. And so we took the best of cold storage, created air gap, and we took the best of uh, modern security and created robots that reliably do the same things over and over and over again. So the analogy that I would use is the way that Anchorage works at this most hardware-based level, there's a lot more that we can talk about, but it is effectively an air gap. It's like a space station. There's astronauts on the inside of the space station, and when they want to come out to do a spacewalk, they have to not connect the inside of the space station directly to space or else all the air goes away. And so we've created robotic mechanisms by which we can safely move data from an online host, which is obviously an insecure host, to our hardware security modules and air-gapped hosts. So when you think about the clients that you have been serving, institutions are maybe the bread and butter. You mentioned when you guys raised your most recent funding round at a $3 billion valuation that the firm was at an inflection point when it came to the degree of institutional participation in the market. Goldman Sachs participated as an investor. How are you getting the banks comfortable touching crypto itself? Is custody the big 
impediment for them? I think it still is in many different ways. Not only is in the sense that the technology for the banks is obviously still very foreign, and so they take a long time to do their own evaluation and do their homework, but I think the banks are actually more concerned about the regulatory aspects of custody. And it really was only when Anchorage became the first federally chartered crypto bank last year that the bank said, wait a minute, there is a federally chartered bank. That means that the OCC is now regulating crypto. The OCC being the oldest regulator in the United States for banking and the regulator of these large banks. And so when that happens, it was really an unlocking of the ability of the banks to actually engage with the space. Of course, in the meantime, the technology has evolved, liquidity has evolved, a lot of the issues and kinks have been solved in the crypto markets and in the infrastructure that needed to be built. So it really was a confluence of different aspects that in parallel were solved. But this one was the last unlocking was the fact that the OCC issued a charter and that Anchorage still is today the only operational federally chartered crypto bank. So you have this shiny, fancy charter. Has that pushed big banks to start engaging with the firm? And what are they doing with you? A hundred percent. A hundred percent has. And it's not just been big banks. It's been a major unlock for the whole space, really, because it was a step function in trustworthiness for the whole space last year when this happened. But banks have three or four different internal buyers, so to speak, in three or different forms that they're actually engaging with us. So as I mentioned, Anchorage is an institutional platform. And the platform here means that they can engage with us in multiple manners. Some banks want to offer buy and sell for their retail consumers. And so what they want is to use our custody APIs, our settlement APIs, and our trading APIs to offer these services. Then some banks actually want to offer custody services and prime services to their ultra high net worth individuals. And so those are looking for either relationship so they can actually send their clients over to some company that can actually do the purchasing maintenance and has that white glove service that their clients are expecting or themselves having the capabilities to do it on their client's behalf. Then there's also the prime desks and folks looking at these lending opportunities, these ability to generate seven to 9% APY return on dollars or companies wanting to extend credit to their clients using crypto as collateral. Because right now, the status quo is if you go to one of the large banks with a billion dollars of Bitcoin and you ask them for a $1 million loan backed by a billion dollars of Bitcoin, they will say no. They don't know how to custody. They don't know how to liquidate. They don't know how to track. They don't know what they need to do. And so they effectively say no to what would be otherwise a really profitable business. And then finally, you also have the treasury, right? You have either the investment side where they're investing in tokens and companies that return tokens, or really this capital preservation narrative of put, putting Bitcoin or Ethereum on their balance sheet. So there's three or four different ways that we engage with banks in three or four different narratives. All of them have increased massively since the charter came to be and since we really completed our prime services and have the full stack. I wonder the extent to which banks losing their top talent might slow the adoption among these types of financial institutions, right? I feel like this cycle has played out. You get the people to build it, then they leave, then they almost have to start from scratch. Are you seeing something of that nature play out? Yes, but I'm seeing many other things simultaneously that are compensating on the other side. Number one, these banks are recognizing that the crypto strategy is extremely important. And since it's extremely important, they're actually increasing the budgets and the aggressiveness 
out of which they're reaching out to Anchorage employees, actually, which is something that we can actually see and track across time. And so it's very obvious that anybody that works at Anchorage has a massive, massive premium on the market right now because there's only one federal chartered bank. And so anyone that has been through it actually has the main expertise that nobody else in the world really has. So we are noting an increase in the importance, urgency, and the budgets for hiring top talent and talent from crypto native companies. The second thing that we see is that you are absolutely right. Even though talent, there's a little bit of a revolving door from the large institutions to more crypto native and more upstart style companies, there's also companies like Anchorage that are solving these problems and offering in a silver platter APIs and prime services regulated with all the SOC 1s and SOC 2s and insurance, all the stamps of approval used by some of the largest institutions in the world that effectively allow you to come to crypto a lot faster. The thing that is lost has been the attempt of these banks believing that they can actually do this internally on their own. Some might, but the majority of them that have tried have failed or have succeeded in a very limited capacity and are realizing that even if they build something, they can't possibly keep pace with the industry. You know, it's insane for you and I to keep track of all of the things that are happening in crypto and we're full time in this. For a, a company that has this as an offshoot business or a side business that is not their main thing, this is obviously even harder. And so they're realizing that partnership with banks like Anchorage Digital Bank are the right way to go forward because it accelerates to go to market and already has a lot of the problem solved for them. So how did you go about getting and securing that charter? How does that process work? Yeah, so it's a combination of things. Number one, we were already in market with tens of billions of dollars of custody and trading. And we had some of the world's largest clients and all of the funds in the United States that mattered. And so when you see Anchorage before the charter is already a company in operation with all of our policies and procedures for years executing on this business. And that's a very different thing when you're applying for a charter. And what that allowed us to do was instead of applying for a de novo charter to the OCC, what we did was an actual conversion of our trust charter into a federal charter. And that transition, that conversion allowed us to not have to start from scratch. And so when we applied, we applied with already data and policy and procedures and what we were already executing. Instead of saying, this is what we're going to do, we just have to say, this is what we're doing. And this is what we're going to change to meet this new higher bar at the federal level. So that allowed us to be the fastest one. It allowed us to show competence on executing to the business, which then allowed us to be the only one to get through. So that's part of it. Part of this is obviously the timing was great, which was we got approved right before the transition to the Biden administration, and then obviously preparedness. We always, always do the right thing from a security perspective and from a safety perspective, and we're constantly looking for ways to improve our regulatory strategy too. And so that obviously made us available to add one more charter or to do a changing regulatory strategy at that time. Does this mean that you guys can engage directly with the Fedwire? So we are part of the Fed, but we are not actually taking FDIC insured deposits. And so, no, we don't have access to the Fedwire because fiat is not part of our business. For fiat, we integrate with the banks. And there's many reasons for that. The main reason being that we don't actually want to compete against our clients. We don't want to take deposits. And it simplifies operations of a bank. The moment you take deposits, you have to become a bank holding company. And once you become a bank holding company, there's a lot more restrictions that are put on your business. And number two, we partner with banks for fiat. What we're here to do is to help you do crypto, to help you build products in crypto. So that's really what we're focused on, the building blocks for that. And for that, we don't need FDIC insurance because we wouldn't take fiat deposits. 
You know, it was, it was pretty interesting at this conference I was at this week. It was a derivatives conference, so obviously a lot of talk about FTX's ambitions to go direct to clients with crypto derivatives through a new type of model that doesn't involve brokers or FCMs or involves them to a much lesser extent, but not a lot of talk about decentralized finance, decentralized options and futures. All of that stuff is still not within the purview of a lot of these more traditional financial folks. Neither is the metaverse or NFTs. So to an extent, we're still early. So I wonder from your vantage point, maybe folks that you're dealing with on more of the cutting edge are looking at this stuff. But when you think about products, what are some of the more bleeding edge products that some of these folks are developing? So we are definitely, as you mentioned, in a really interesting position where obviously we only work with institutions. And four years ago, those institutions were primarily VC firms and crypto funds and family offices. But today, it's all over the map. It is large consumer banks, large investment banks, uh, folks doing remittances, corporates, large fintechs, some of the largest fintechs in the world, obviously crypto natives like miners and exchanges and so on and so forth. So we really get to see a lot of things. I think the most bleeding edge things that we're seeing, well, number one, NFTs. We announced that we purchased in our custodying Visa's CryptoPunk. And then from the moment that we announced that, every single one of our clients that had NFTs just reached out and said, hey, why don't you support my punk or my ape or my monkey or my whatever collection and take custody of it too? And so we were a little bit forced into this business because our client just wanted us to do it. And so that definitely has been an area of expansion, a little bit on the bleeding edge, that traditional institutions are obviously not in NFTs in a very meaningful manner, but there's offshoots and there's crypto funds that are just NFT funds. So that's really cool of something that happened in the past 12 months that had never really happened before. How much of your sort of assets under custody are tied to NFTs? I would say it's a small percentage still. I would say it probably maps in the hundreds of millions. It's likely to be in that category in terms of actual quantum. Uh, but the business is obviously measured in the tens of billions, which makes it not significant enough yet. Sure. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a lot. Well, in crypto, I guess you get desensitized to uh, <laughs> to billions and multiple yeah. billions because the market moves so fast. But the second thing that I was going to say is some of the most interesting things that are happening are actually in the stablecoin settlement use cases. It's absolutely fascinating to see corporates and fintechs that have nothing to do with crypto whatsoever and don't really have a plan in what we assume are traditional crypto businesses, you know, buy and sell or return generation through yield, but are looking at their core businesses, their core US dollar businesses and saying, hey, I can do payroll a lot more efficiently if I do this. I don't have to do Fedwire or T plus two, or I can do settlements in a way cheaper manner say, as an arbitrary example, full delivery companies that could actually pay their deliveries on a per-delivery basis, or a ride-sharing company that could pay after each ride-share the driver immediately. And they can't really do that with a traditional financial system, or it's very inefficient for them to do so. But there's these new avenues for the core business to improve because we have these amazing crypto settlement networks. So those have been absolutely fascinating because they're coming to us with ideas that we would have never thought of because they have this problem in their core business and they're trying to make it more efficient. So I, I love that. I've always loved payments. I've always loved settlements and a lot of innovation is happening there right now. 
Not too many people love settlement. That's a very, <laughs> it's a very nerdy thing to say. <laughs> Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. So just to sort of like finish the thread on NFTs, there's a bunch of different brands buying plots in various metaverses, not necessarily financial institutions or like these NFT hedge funds, but brands buying NFTs. There's a whole list of examples, but are those people coming to you as well? Like non-financial services companies asking you to store these things? Because otherwise I've been very curious about whether they just have some guy within the firm just holding it. No, 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 no. These very large companies have actually done a really good job, rigorous analysis because of the asset class that it is going through legal compliance, IT. And so, yes, they always end up at Anchorage or a partner that allows them to do this safely because nobody wants to be responsible for it because it's such a hard thing to custody a bearer instrument, right? There's two main reasons I would say that they would be doing it. The first one is obviously it's free marketing. You buy an NFT or you do something in crypto and for a few hundred thousand dollars, you get tens of millions of dollars worth of mainstream press. So that's a great trade-off, if you ask me. The second reason, which is probably the major reason why people are doing this for the ones that actually want to build products, is they want to try it out. They want to go through the process of acquiring these things, of participating in these things, of seeing the reaction of the public. Just you know, greasing the wheels a little bit, so to speak, around if you're going to build a product in NFTs, you have to own one. If you're going to build a product in any kind of new type of technology, you have to play with it internally. And so they're definitely coming into it as the beginning of their journey into actually building products later. It's an interesting point you make about the extent to which it translates into press, but it also is a pretty good bang for your buck when you think about community. You can buy one of these NFTs and then you open yourself up to 10,000 
high earning or high net worth folks. And that's a good market to be in. A hundred percent. And I'm not talking about anyone in specific, but all these companies have different goals and different elements around community, whether it matters to them or it doesn't matter to them. Some of them are just trying out what it looks like for them to come into crypto because maybe some of them are not typically associated or some of them actually are seen as potentially disrupted by some element of crypto. And so there's also an attempt there to test out the water or to test out the markets. So what does this financialization of NFTs look like? I was talking with someone at this conference who's been like a market structure guru for 40 years. He was like trading when you would have to stamp stuff and hand it off and punch holes into things. And he asked the question of how do you figure out the price to lend against these things? If you take the NFT as a collateral for credit, how do you know, since it's so ambiguous, let's say like a picture of a cat and there's a floor price, sure. But how do we know that that's a logical price to then do other things on top of yeah, it's a hard question that currently is trying to be solved by everybody that is in this market, us included, of course. There's quite a few startups trying to do valuation of NFTs. And how do you solve it? Well, there's many ways to come at it, but obviously the first one is floor price. The second one is historical trends. The third one is actually crowdsourcing valuations, which some startups have been taking to doing where they effectively ask the price of things. And finally, I think the final outcome here is a company that values NFTs and actually does a worst case bid. So they're, uh, they become the dealer of last resort for these NFTs so that folks like Anchorage, for example, can more comfortably take NFTs as collateral for loans because we know that there's a dealer of last resort and we can actually sell this off potentially at a massive haircut, but that there's liquidity there. So these are probably the ways that the space is gonna go forward. Companies creating liquidity, companies creating different methods of valuation based on different principles, including crowdsourcing, because ultimately people wanting to buy this or committing to buy this is what matters at the end. Yeah, I was speaking with an executive at one bank who said he was looking at this and I don't know, it seems like a very thorny problem to tackle. Yeah, but usually when you have hard problems, you have big opportunities. Yeah, huge opportunities. And so I guess probably some people look at a lot of the valuations out there for firms operating in this market of trading, custody, Prime, Anchorage, Falcon X, Bitco, there's a whole slew of firms with big valuations. Is it going to be a winner-take-all market? Obviously not on custody. And even in traditional markets, you have multiple custodians on which people rely. But there's going to have to be a consolidation to justify these valuations. Or are you guys going to just expand more broadly into businesses that will justify everyone being you know, worth $25, $40, 50000000000 billion? Because that's probably the return your investors are expecting. Yeah, I think it's all of the above, really. Number one, there will be aggregation. And we've already seen purchases. You know, BitGo already was purchased by Galaxy. You saw acquisitions like Curve. You saw everybody that did not have a custody solution realize that owning the key is the most important thing that you can do in the crypto stack. Because without the key, you don't have really anything and you don't have the ultimate relationship that matters. But it's also not a winner-take-all market in the majority of these prime businesses, ultimately because clients learned in 28 
what it looks like to have a single prime and to be exposed. So they want diversification themselves. And so they want at least one or two relationships, a backup custodian or a backup trading infrastructure or a backup prime. So that's the second reason. And the third one is the types of businesses that are available to Anchorage are a lot larger than the types of businesses available to a traditional custodian or even a traditional prime. Because again, NFTs are not something that you'd traditionally put as an example in the category of something that BNY Mellon or State Street can execute on. But lo and behold, Anchorage is one of the front-running institutional companies working in NFTs just because of the way that the technology works and that the crypto markets work. And so that's absolutely fascinating to see that we have a place to play and we have a place in settlements, in payment use cases, prime use cases, custody use cases, but also security token use cases, right? How many trillions of dollars of traditional securities? We're a bank. We can custody securities. We're already integrated with several ATSs. And so success there also accrues to a company like Anchorage. So I think that's why it justifies these valuations while allowing for a non-winner-take-all dynamic and still having aggregation happen over the next few years. What are you connected to ATSs for? So essentially, ATSs will be able to trade securities and will be able to custody them and settle them, right? Because you need licenses for actual securities. If you deem something to be a security token, then it's under securities laws, and thus you need to have a regulated stack. And at the bottom of the regulated stack is what? Is a bank. Got it. So are you going to operate your own ATS? No. Anchorage enables these use cases. As a building block, we have settlement, we have custody, we have staking. So any ATS that wishes to have custody of these securities can do so at Anchorage under Anchorage Digital Bank. Understood. So if an ATS out there wanted to trade security tokens, they could do so on your technology. That's right. They would have the book, they would do the trading, but we would effectively be operating as the underlying custody stack. Got it. That makes sense. So what is keeping you up at night? I mean, obviously, we're in an unfortunate ongoing conflict in the world. And from a domestic perspective, inflation is a problem. So it's an uncertain environment globally and domestically. And crypto, to an extent, has found itself in the crossfire of some of this discourse or debate that crypto is being used or can be used to evade sanctions. And you have various politicians finding themselves on either side. Is this something you think about, given the degree to which you folks have tried to become so regulated? It's definitely something that we think about. And you're absolutely right that the war is is a humanitarian tragedy. And I think it does show that crypto can be a force for good. So through the fog of war, we're actually seeing that crypto is becoming a lifeline for Ukrainians, that don't have access to their own financial system in the face of Russian efforts to try to shut it down. And so I'm very optimistic that after this all is said and done, that these socially uplifting cases actually are going to be the true glimpses into the future of digital asset ecosystem. And we're going to be able to show people why we were right about crypto having very positive impact in the world at large, even in these particular use cases. And, and you're also right on the other side that there's this myth about crypto allowing the evasion of sanctions. But number one, transparency of the blockchain means that it's a, a very poor choice. Crypto is a very poor choice for evading sanctions, as you very well know. And the analogy that I've been using for traditional media is 
try to think about it like trying to rob a bank where all of the money has already had colored dye explode on it. And so not only the money is almost unusable, the robber is exposed whenever they try to use it. Mm -hmm. And so crypto transparency works a little bit like that. Plus, we know by doing on-chain analysis that there's really no sanctions evasion that seems to be happening because there's no liquidity for it to happen. And we would have seen it on chain on these exchanges and participants. So the things that we think a lot about is, look, we can't control the macro environment. So as a person running a company, the thing that I need to be is extremely well capitalized for as many years as it takes for the crypto market to come back or for us to execute without having to be concerned about what the fundraising environment or the macro environment is. And we're extremely lucky to be in that position. We don't really need to, to worry about runway. We are extremely well capitalized. On Series D, we raised $250 million, but we didn't even spend $1 of the $80 million of Series C when we did so. So extremely well capitalized for the future, don't really have capital needs, and we'll be able to execute no matter how long this war actually lasts. So to answer your question, finally, of what actually keeps me up at night, can't control macro. So the things that I can control are the things that we execute on. And the things that I'm worried the most about is focus. All these opportunities in crypto, whether you do security tokens, you do NFTs, you do deep integration with DeFi, you go deeply into payments use cases, deeply into settlements use cases to integrate with largest consumer bank in the world, largest investment bank in the world, largest ATS in the world, largest worker deal in the world. Like, what do you do? You can't do everything. You have to have a coherent strategy of what you're going after. And so that's what keeps me up at night, lack of focus. In terms of DeFi, which we haven't talked all that much about, what's the roadmap for Anchorage in decentralized finance? It is to allow safe access to DeFi in a way that is very easy for any institution to do so. So what we do is we have a platform that allows you to participate, but we also will allow deep integrations into it so that you have an easier way that is not just withdrawing to some destination address, right? Because DeFi is many different things. And so once we identify something that is a common use case that clients are looking for, whether it's, say, trading on decentralized exchanges or having access to protocols like Compound and Aave, to generate yields on their uh, on their crypto or on their US dollars, then we will build vertically integrated solutions for them to have easy access to it. What we've seen right now is that we've been able to offer really competitive rates for US dollar yielding through CFI actually. And so seven to 9% on dollars. And so in a way, when you go talk to a client and you say, hey, I have real institutions, real companies with recourse taking over collateralized loans. So putting say $2 of Bitcoin for each dollar that is actually borrowed out and generating 79% a year. That's way better than them realizing or working through the smart contract risk and generating you know, lower yields on single, low single digit or mid single digits. And so that's been fascinating because every institution that comes to us that has cash and is worried about inflation ends up participating in our financing uh, products that are primarily CFI right now, but in the future, of course, will include the DeFi opportunities too. Well, thank you for that roadmap. I think we have to leave it at that. I'd like to thank you so much for joining the show today, for getting me back into the swing of things after <laughs> this <laughs> long journey. Diogo, thanks so much for stopping by The Scoop. Hope to talk to you soon. Where can our listeners learn more about what you are doing at Anchorage? Yeah, anchorage.com is the easiest way. And if you're interested in working in a company like Anchorage, anchorage.com slash careers. And uh, I'm on Twitter twitter.com slash Diogo Monica. 
All right, sir. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.